Welcome to the Mike Litton Experience Podcast. Mike has over 31 years experience in real estate, finance, and investing. He's passionate about being a father, a teacher, a realtor, an investor, and a leader. Everyone has a story, and our passion is to help them tell it. And now, introducing the host of the Mike Litton Experience, Mike Litton. So what can you expect from the Mike Litton Experience? You can expect stories that will inspire, motivate, advice that will sharpen your focus, and expert information on real estate, finance, and market conditions. Peter Buknevich, thank you so much for joining us for the Mike Litton Experience, man. I'm so happy to be here. I've seen part of you got a, you got a high energy show there, Mike. I'm so excited for our time together. I really am. And I know I know we worked I know that you're very very busy and I know we worked you worked really hard to make the time to do this and I cannot I cannot thank you enough. So like we talked about, everyone has a story and our passion is to help them tell it. So what we're going to do with your permission is we're going to start with where you were born and then we're going to go all the way up to today and then we can talk about anything that you're working on that you'd like to talk about today. Is that okay? That's perfectly fine. So where were you born? I was born in Yonkers, New York. Oh my gosh. I was born in Yonkers, New York and um, I, I didn't live there for very long, but it's a it's a very important place to me. Yeah. Um, right on the Hudson River, just yeah. north of New York City. We went from Yonkers, New York in a, I want to say, I'm looking at my cell phone now because I keep a picture as my background, the yeah. screenshot, whatever, the wallpaper yeah. uh -huh. of the, I guess it's maybe a six-story tenement walk-up building okay. that my mother used to hang clothes on the roof, oh. one of those fold-out um, umbrella-type uh, clothesline things. Yeah. Um, and it was a it was an urban environment. Um, my my uh, my all my family was from there. My my I'm Ukrainian American. My, uh, on my father's side and half on my mother's side, and my mother was uh, half Belarusian and and Ukrainian as well. And so in that area, there was a lot of ethnic people from Eastern Europe at that point in time, Southwest Yonkers, New York, um, and. Uh, my dad grew up there. Uh, my grandfather had a, a butcher shop and, and uh, he came over to the United States uh, very early in this uh, 20th century and managed to get himself a, a building and a butcher shop and so forth. Wow. Uh, very strong um, Eastern Catholic background, Greek, yeah. what they used to call it Greek Catholic. It's um, I have an uncle who's a priest, two aunts who are nuns, all on my father's side of the family. It was, it, wow. it, was, it was a little bit, it could be a little bit overwhelming at times, except when we met them, they were just like regular people. It was like, sure. uh, you know, uh, Sister Marina now, she used to be Sister John Mark. She would come over and with, with nuns were at the house a lot visiting. Wow. When we moved to Connecticut, we went from Yonkers when I was about four and a half, five years old to, to, uh, Brookfield, Connecticut. So we went from a very urban environment to a almost a suburban environment, but almost on the verge of being rural mm -hmm. because it was a, we moved into a, a, a neighborhood of homes that was built, tract homes type of thing. 
Uh, but it was like you when we went outside the there was woods in the backyard and the contiguous woods went forever and it went down to a, a New England farm down at the corner of Route 7 and 133 and it was you know there was like 16,000 people in the town and the center of the town had a congregational church that was built you know in the 1800s with a white steeple all that kind of stuff it was just like yeah. you know, it just went from um an urban environment to a much more bucolic setting in in, in semi-rural new england where you could ride your bike all day long and go outside and no one bothered you it was just it was just a a very interesting um change i'll bet that was an adjustment well it was it was an adjustment i was very small at the time yeah. so so um i remember though uh this is something i remember very well which always hits home with me my mother would let me go down the stairs of where we lived mm -hmm. um, because we weren't of great means to start off. Mm -hmm. You know, dad was a working man and he came from immigrant, we came from immigrant background. Um, he had attained some success, you know, modest, a little bit later on, and then had a setback. I'll get into that a little bit. Mm -hmm. But my father was also an Olympic athlete. Wow. And uh, he was, believe it or not, he paddled. Uh, C2 kayaks, racing kayaks, and K2 race, uh, C2 racing canoes and K2 racing kayaks. Yeah. The 1952 Olympics uh, out of the Yonkers Canoe Club. He was national champion in a couple of events and he did uh, 10,000 meter doubles with another guy. Yeah. And as a little kid, I would go down there. I was born in 59. I would go down there in the early 60s. Yeah. And my, and all these guys would be doing their doing that sport. It was yeah. a, basically a um, a a very rigorous uh, endurance stamina oriented sport. You know, yeah, sounds like it. Rowing or or whatever. And my father was very big into it. He um, I think he got into it possibly. Uh, my my theory always was because my dad had some things to work out when he came back from World War II. Yeah, he was a veteran. He was involved in the invasion of Guam. He was a Navy CB. Wow! And um, went right in after the Marines when they went into Guam. Mm -hmm. And I've got pictures of him. You know all that. And I, I'm going to talk a lot about my dad because my dad was probably the most influential person to me in my life. My my father and my mother. Yeah. But um, he was a, he was a great man in my eyes. Of a, a, a huge man in my eyes. And Navy veteran. Uh, then went to the Olympics inspired my cousin my older cousin johnny cousin johnny mm -hmm. who is retired and i think living in south carolina now he's I, I, if he sees this he's I, I think he's in his 80s or something like that but he i think <laughs> he's pretty fit playing golf and stuff yeah. um he went to the olympics twice in 1956 and wow so i i, I want to say that would have been um I forget what well, Rome was one of them. My dad was in Helsinki, Finland. But what I can say is that my family are close there too. Mm -hmm. Had the 50s Summer Olympics and all of them from 52, 56, and then the tail end of 60. Every four years, someone from our family was going. I, I never did it. I never went. I didn't cut the... I, <laughs> I wasn't much of an athlete. I mean, I always worked out and stuff like that. I wrestled in high school for a little bit and I, I ran track one year and then I, I, I mostly worked my way through high school. But yeah. my earliest memories of Yonkers are actually very good. Yeah. Um, it was not a 
a particularly prosperous environment in some respects, but I was just starting to tell you a story. My mother would let me go down from this place, from a two bedroom apartment, mm -hmm. five people, my two older brothers, huge men, twins to each other, about six foot two, six foot three, you know, big guys. Yeah. Um, they were off going to Ukrainian school or wherever they were going there. They were like six, almost seven years older than me. I would be able to go down into the um, area that was between the apartment buildings with all the other little munchkins down there, mm -hmm. run around in the afternoon. People would stick their head out the window, check on you how things are going and stuff like that. Run around the building. You didn't get too far away and nothing bad ever happened. Yeah. You know, and, and it's, it was in an urban environment and we had people from every nationality in that group, mostly first wave Eastern European, you know, Southern European, Western European, mostly. Uh, then later on, there was a lot of people from uh, uh, Puerto Rico and uh, Dominican Republic it was a, a big nationality and, and Yonkers. Mm -hmm. um, my dad's company moved up to Connecticut, so we moved up with it and, and we were able to get a house up there and so on and so forth. So that was a a, a good, you know, a, a good change. But as I remember it, it was very fond memories as mm -hmm. a little tiny kid in this place that was, you know, not fancy, mm -hmm. but had big trees that you could climb, you, and, uh, a, a, you know, playground across the street. Mm -hmm. And uh, in later years, it, it got rougher. It got a lot rougher mm -hmm. where you maybe didn't want to, you had to be a little bit more careful when we would go back to visit. Yeah. But as a little kid, it was just it was just great. And yeah. all the stuff a five year old needs, right? Yeah, all the stuff a five year old needs or yeah. four or five year old needs. And you just have friends and your mom's there, your dad's there. And when my dad would come home, we'd, you know, I'd run out to see him and stuff. It just it just can't say enough about that start as being a good start. Yeah. You know, and um, then we, you know, we moved to Connecticut and I went to school. My parents put me in a. Catholic grammar school, St. Joseph's school. And I went there for six years. And then I decided I, I, I would like to see a, about going to public school because at the time, the public school seemed a little bit more um, on the cutting edge, at least in where we lived. Brookfield, yeah. Connecticut was Northern Fairfield County. They put a lot of effort into their public school system. Um, the Catholic schools were a little bit more, um, yeah, I want to say they're hard pressed for the resources at the time for like um, science microscopes, you know, the things that you use in, in, in science class and things of that nature. Yeah. Computers were only just starting in those years, not in my junior high school, but starting to get into high school. You started to see those programmable computers where you were programmed with the cards and the bubbles and stuff. I remember those, yeah. You remember those, all right. So I do. An idea of how old you are, maybe a little bit. But I remember <laughs> doing that in, in my high school years. I mean, that was like the nascent beginning of it all, not even scratching the surface uh, compared to what we're doing now. You yeah. know, and um, Amazing how much it's advanced. Amazing, amazing. So... Um, went to Brookfield High School, graduated Brookfield High School, um, wound up uh, uh, doing my college uh, undergraduate at Central Connecticut State University in okay. Connecticut. And then after that, and I'm kind of going a little bit faster now. Oh, you're fine. 
went to work in the corporate world, um, got on with a company called Bristol Myers. Yeah. The big company and was in sales and marketing for them. And they, uh, great company. I have to say it was a great, great company. And uh, right out of school, I was able to land a position with them, was recruited uh, into that Mm -hmm. arena. And my brothers had similar corporate tracks uh, in their respective careers and both did very well. What did you get your degree in? I got a degree in business management. Okay. Uh, it, was, it was the equivalent of a, uh, a, a um, I guess, business administration, but at Central, they called it uh, business management. And it actually was a BS. You know, that uh, it could have been a BA someplace else, but it was a BS. And that was before, uh, long before I went to law school. So I, I had a, but like an eight year period of time where I worked for two different companies before I decided to go to law school. Although, Somebody dug it up some years ago. When I was 11 years old, <laughs> I was the paper boy of the month. Oh. <laughs> for the, the Danbury, Connecticut News Times. Oh, I love it. I love it. Kind of embarrassing. At the time, when you're a kid, you don't necessarily want to have those kinds of things. Everybody <laughs> makes fun of me at school for getting it. Yeah. I was, um, I was big into scouting, which was great yeah. at the time. Boy Scouts was great. My brothers were, and I, was, I didn't make Eagle. Mm-hmm. Didn't make Eagle. Was a Life Scout, though. Had a wonderful time. Think it's one of the best things that anyone could do. Yeah. Young people. Camping, hiking, 95-mile canoe trip, Makaios Lake region when I was 15 years old. I'm running the boat, the canoe. And, you know, my dad was a canoeist, so it's great for me to get in a, a dif- different environment. Right. All those lakes, going down to St. John's River, doing some rapids. You know, doing all that was fun. It was a lot of fun. It was really good. It was it was a great experience to get out and do camping every every uh, uh, month. We would have a camp out. Yeah. My troop. And then a couple of years in a row, you would get year round this ward year round camper. That was probably one of the things I was proud of most was that you camped out every month, no matter what. January, Mm -hmm. February, March, April, all the way through. And the coldest probably as a little kid kind of you know 12 mm-hmm. years old yeah you're out at night doing fine mm-hmm. 10 below zero Oof. not bad not bad you're lear- lear- learning how to do it learning yeah. how to build a fire cook your breakfast you know do yeah. all of those things which you don't see it uh, you don't see it as much now you know yeah. you don't see it as much no and that's a shame it really yeah. is so uh just to finish my, my education um, got my undergraduate degree, did pretty well there, um, went to work for Bristol Myers. Uh, they transferred me. I got small promotions along the way and they transferred me in 1984 to California. Oh, and I was, it was a, it was a corporate move for me when I was 25 years old. And mm. I, and I had, a, a, a just the start of a supervisory role in the company and handled um, the area from Los Angeles down to San Diego. Okay. And then I was going to San Diego, and that was it. I said, yeah. San Diego, I'm not leaving California at all. There was, you over. We're thinking about maybe having you move to uh, another great place, because this was supposed to be a stop along the way. And I said, gotcha. nope, there's no humidity. There's no bugs. <laughs> it, it's... 
the weather's good all this the place time. is awesome. <laughs> awesome. So I stayed and I and I and I got a place, my first place um that I ever owned was in Escondido. Right? Oh, that's cool. Condo condo down there. And I was uh went from Bristol Myers and worked for another good company and um was Alcon Surgical. Mm-hmm. The company was put me in the operating room with all the ophthalmologists in San Diego, pretty mm-hmm. much. Probably most of the guys that I used to call on at, at, at that time are probably retired by now, Yeah, I would think. But I called on all the hospitals that you got down there. I know they've changed hands and stuff, Scripps. Yeah. Uh, we used to be Mercy Hospitals now part of, I think it's part of Scripps now or something like that. Yeah, right? Scripps, yeah. It's Scripps Mercy. Right. And uh, the one that was down in, uh, one, what's, the, what's the hospital closer to Pacific Beach? Oh, boy. You know. Harbor a hospital or something like that. There was there was all the hospitals all the way out to La Mesa. I had basically San Diego County. Yeah. And then um, and then I decided I wanted to be a professional. You know, wanted to reignite something that uh, had been in me for a while. So at 30 years old, I decided to go um, to law school, and I went to California Western. Okay. In San Diego, right downtown there. Yeah. And, you know, by that point, you know, it was, it was a little bit of a change because, you know, you get a house and you, you, you're starting to do a life in your, in your um, later twenties, yeah. um, which, what, which one was able to do back then, mm-hmm. you could come from a place where you didn't have a lot of family money and go to a, a decent undergraduate school and then yeah. get a decent job and then maybe get another decent job and after eight years of doing that or even four or five years of doing that we were put in a position where you could buy your first piece of real estate in Escondido which was a very nice condominium I could live in it today mm-hmm. and then went and got a nice place still still have a place in Rancho Panasquitas there you go and and I was able to do that and I'm not back breaking my arm patting myself on the back what I'm saying is I was able to do that then. How come people are not able to do that now? Yeah, it's a different time. It's a different time. If we're jumping to another subject, I think that one of the biggest crises in California today is the lack of housing stock and the inability for young people to be able to get out and get that equity start, get their start on that, what we would call the California dream or the American dream. Yeah. That has got to get back to where it was before and change a little bit, in my opinion. I totally agree. And I know some of your podcasts, you have touched on that. And I think that's probably one of the bigger issues of the day for this state is is affordability crisis of, yeah. of homes and, and, and rents, too. I mean, I know it's hard for people, you know, young people to to make it with the rents being what they are. And I just never remember it being like that you could always get something right you could and it, it's 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 really um um changed a, a, a great deal you know i i want to we're actually writing a book i'm i start next month um in a couple of weeks actually uh writing my first book on home ownership and the reason we're doing it is <clears throat> millennials have ptsd as it relates to home ownership from the Great Recession. When they were children, they watched the people around them that they loved dearly lose their homes. 
And so now they don't have any use for, for real estate. They don't actually want it. And so what we're doing is we're writing this book as almost a, it's basically a handbook. But what we're doing is we're taking the case to millennials that home ownership needs to be part of the of the American dream again. According to the National Association of Realtors, the average, the average net worth, and I'm talking nationwide, of a homeowner is just over three hundred thousand dollars. The average net worth of a tenant is less than eight thousand. Take that, multiply it by tens of millions of millennials that don't want real estate in their life. And we have an issue here. Okay. Right. And so part of what part of what we're doing and part of the reason we're doing it is I want to take the case directly to millennials. I also want to show them that there are different ways to be able to buy a home with zero down. They can buy a they can buy a home with an FHA loan and their parents can get can gift them the down payment, the closing costs, the, the reserves, everything. They don't have to come out of pocket for a thing. VA, obviously, we know this is zero down, right? So there are options available. And I'm constantly, Peter, running into people, because I've been doing this for 31 plus years, I'm constantly running into people who are telling us that they thought they had to have 20% down. Nobody ever asked them if they had VA eligibility. And their VA eligibility, they could have purchased 10 years sooner with zero down. So... You with me? So it's I'm I'm a hundred percent with you, and I yeah. think that uh, when you describe it as PTSD, I think yeah. you hit it kind of spot on. Yeah, there's been a certain inertia that I've sensed in the young people in my life, mm -hmm. um, and I'm talking about people you love dearly, mm -hmm. uh, you know, stepchildren, whoever, children, you know, whoever, who are coming into that zone, and and it was kind of a no brainer for me. I mean, as soon as I could do it, I did it yeah. with as little as I could, little as I could muster together to get the first starter place that you would want to get. That was nice that you could maybe build some equity up in it, flip it, not, not necessarily flip it like people flip houses today, but then go to the next level. And then, you know, and all of that, all of the equity appreciation in real estate has been a, a significant source of, of, of net worth for everybody that I know, yeah. and, and you wouldn't want it. You know, I want it for my daughter. Mm -hmm. You know, who's a senior now. Fast forward, I I did have a daughter, and she's now going to graduate from uh, 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 this spring uh, from University of Arizona Tucson, doing very well. I got wow. her did straight A's, and uh, her last, you know, like all kids, the first couple of years they're having a good time a little bit more than than you would you would hope they would, but then uh, they, they come around just like. Possibly. part of the circle of life yeah <laughs> and, and then and then go ahead and uh, you know improve in their scholastics and so forth yeah. but you want to have young people to have that opportunity it's not good for our state where everything is getting to be where there's haves and there's these have-nots and we're hollowing out the middle class where you need to take this is to the millennials but the millennials also need everybody down to i guess whatever it is generation z Getting a little bit of political here. Mm -hmm. That needs to be a mandate up in Sacramento to pursue the programs that are going to allow this to occur in this state so that people do not leave here to go to the proverbial migration to red states where they can buy a house and maybe don't even like it as much there as, as they would here if they could do it. We can do it here. There's no reason. It may be different. Yeah. 
and, and it may be a lot of fun. I mean, it may, it may be, well, maybe you're not going to have the, uh, you know, house out in the way far away with a long commute, you know, with a, a yard and things. Maybe that vision is going to change. Maybe it's going to be a little bit more in building in an urban area with some compromise to that. But I think that with, you know, green spacing and different things that you can do in a community environment, you can have a huge uptick in the quality of life. People can raise families there. Uh, they could they could have all the benefits of working in San Diego downtown or any of the other areas wherever in California. Yeah. And uh, and and we can make it happen. And, and we need to have the political willpower to seek that. And um, I think, in a sense, demand it. I, yeah. I don't want to say demand it. Maybe that maybe that's too strong. But that's got to be a priority. Well, if but if anybody's going to demand it, it's going to be us. Yeah. Okay. Because we're now in a place where this is this is our state. This is this is our platform, right? This is our time to leave a stamp on this place and leave it better than the way we found it. Right. Okay. And by the way, the disparity you're talking about is now spreading. It's not just here. You're seeing it in Texas. You're seeing it in Florida. You, this disparity is spreading. It's not just here. Right. And, uh, you know, part of it's spreading because in some respects, people are moving to. Yeah. The they're bringing it from here to there. You know, yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, I've had a conversation. I remember very recently on my street, you know, I've been practicing law for 31 years. I have a firm. I was fortunate enough to, you know, being a partner with a firm before, went out on my own. You know, I've had I've had a, a, a good experience in the practice of law. Work really hard, work a lot of hours, still do it. Uh, don't know if I'd want to visit that on a lot of people, but, uh, you know, I, I would talk to them about, about, about the career path, but it was a calling for me. Yeah. I was going to say that my mother dug up a an article when I was the paper boy of the month, and it said right in there that I wanted to go to law school, and I said that when I was eleven. Oh my gosh, that's and cool. I did. I did want to go. I did, yeah. but I but there was the economics of it weren't there for me when I graduated. I needed to work and make some money and do some things, and I and and I aggressively wanted to move forward in that regard, and and I had good experience with with those companies. So I have a quick question. Sorry to sorry to so. I'm, I'll babble on if you don't. Well, it's okay. So you worked. So you so you worked eight. You said eight years. Eight years. I had four years with one company. Four was another company, and then I went to law school. And I I I didn't do it the, uh, a night program or anything like that. I didn't think I could do that. Yeah. I just I went started. I actually did it in two and a half years. I graduated, uh, got my first job in the law down in San Diego. There were some issues with that uh, firm. It it, it basically um, there was. Firms were great. I had a great clerking position with the firm in San Diego. I had a great mentor in San Diego. And then I came up to, to uh, a job opened up in the desert area where I live now in Palm yeah. Springs. And uh, I went to a firm uh, that did medical malpractice defense. And I, I did that for some years. And then I was worked in Riverside for a while doing insurance defense work. Companies that the insurers hired us to defend their insureds. Yeah. Um, and then after some years of that, I um, I uh, went to work for a firm that I was at for 16 years, became a partner, and then I went out on my own with my own firm of Martin and Buknevich, and then Buknevich Law Offices back in 2012. And I've been doing that for, you know, for ha having my own firm for, for since 2012. But 
it did this month, uh, the 15th was my 31st year in practice. Congratulations. That's uh, it, was, awesome. it was great. And, 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 oh, and I'm very happy to have, I won't mention her name, but tomorrow, a, um, a law student from University of uh, San Diego, USD, mm-hmm. going to come over. And uh, she's, if she wants to, she can maybe be a, a clerk for us over the summer. Oh, and awesome. Her folks live in Indian Wells and stuff. And yeah. so uh, she's, she's visiting up here for the holidays. And so I've, I've become a fixture in the, in the desert mm-hmm. I've been here since 93. Um, loved it. Uh, gets hot in the summer. There's no question about it, but we go to San Diego when we can go yeah. up to wilds and whatnot. Um, but I've been president of desert bar association, president of desert state planning uh, council. Um, I'm currently on the board of the inland empire estate planning seminar and a variety of different uh, charitable organizations in the Coachella Valley. Yeah. And uh, that's where that's where life is centered. My lovely life, Luce. We have a big extended family, and we uh, uh, of kids and grandkids and all that. So we got there's always people over the house all the time on holidays. 25, 30 people or whatever. It's yeah. it's a big big uh, conglomeration of folks. But getting back to what we were talking about. Yeah. Right. It's not, you know, used to be. Put your head, you know, shoulder to the wheel, nose to the grindstone, stay out of trouble, work hard. You're probably going to make it pretty good. Mm-hmm. Might not get exactly what you want. We're pro- it's, it's pretty hard in all the years I've been in California to screw up that much. If you, if you, you might have some setbacks. Yeah. You might. And people do. But now it's like, I think young people must feel that the ladder has been pulled up and they can't get up that ladder. And we, the the people are now more senior Mm -hmm. have to put the ladder back down to let them come up and not, you know, revel in whatever you've accumulated or what equity you have. We have to make the housing stock affordable for people to get their foot in the door and get something started so that they can have, that bucket of investment, because I know you're doing investment, you, you know, mm-hmm. you want to do your 401k, you want to do all the things to do, but home ownership is a big part of it. It is, it really is. Because you can live in it. Once you get it paid off, you can live in it. Yeah. You can pay it off and you can live in it for, and or borrow against it or do whatever you want, but you could also live in it for the rest mm-hmm. of your life. And it continues to go up in value. Continues so that's, that's part of why we're writing the book because we're like, we're literally, you know, I have parents who, were our blue collar, right? They've been blue collar for sixty years, right? Never executives, nothing, nothing like that, right? And they are worth a lot of money because they owned a home for the last thirty some years, forty years, right? And and you know it's it's so it's two things I think I believe it's we have to take the case of the value of doing it so that it becomes a priority again. And then we need to show them how. Right. Because there's a fear, right? And the fear the fear that you fear the most is the fear of the unknown. And if you're a millennial and you're, you're not necessarily convinced that you should buy a house, you're fearful of what happens if you lose it like they saw happen when they were kids. So we address that in the book. We're gonna talk about deed and lieu thereof. We're gonna talk about short sale. We're going to talk about loan modifications. 
We're going to talk about all the things, CFPB, ombudsman. We're going to talk about all the things that are options for them now if life throws them a curveball. Right. And I one of the things that you could talk about if we could ever get back to that spot would be you get a house that might be a reach for you to afford, but you afford it. Mm -hmm. And you get a reasonable rate on a mortgage. And then you say, I'm going to make some sacrifices along the way. And I'm going to throw a little bit more at the mortgage every year, one payment, two payment, whatever it is, do it. It'll bring it down. You'll get them paid off quicker. It just works. And then you'll see, you know, or, or, you know, when I went to law school, I had a house, I, I went back to living in an apartment and uh, uh, I rented the house out and, and it was at that time, it was very close. You know, I was going from law school gave up a company car, was driving a 72 um, uh, Volkswagen Westphalia van that was falling apart, couldn't even lock it. So, you know, yeah. people would go into it when I was in school and, and roam around like the the the, the, the fellows, the homeless, you know, the people downtown sometimes would do that. And, you know, God bless them. Um, that would happen. And I would, I would go up and mow the lawn at the house for the people while I was doing it. This is my early 30s and just yeah. balancing everything. Yeah. But, but but then you keep it and it, it's like it becomes something that you can give to somebody else or it becomes part of that um, cornerstone of, 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 I guess you would say, net worth. And real estate is uh, a huge part of it. I do trust and estate work, limited amount of uh, estate planning, probably about 10% of my practice, but most of it is trust and estate litigation, people fighting over inheritances. Mm -hmm. to, synopsize it been doing that for a very long period of time handled the states 45 million 30 million 2 million all across the board busy and in court regularly on these kinds of matters and i can't tell you how many people have a substantial net worth from simply owning homes and paying them off over time and how many people were very smart from people come across the border put their foot down. They're working in the fields, maybe in the Coachella Valley that, you know, and, and they, they bought some little place and they got another little place and they got another little place and it doesn't look like much to start. Mm -hmm. But then at the end, we're looking at it as on this person who you wouldn't suspect necessarily has a pretty substantial net worth and it's open to everyone and every immigrant and every person yeah. no matter where they come from. Yeah. Where so my favorite stories is a Cuban immigrant that couldn't find a place to rent and in another state shall remain nameless, but couldn't find a place to rent because he had a very thick accent. English was a distant second language for him and he was a landscaper. Nobody would rent him a house. He ends up doing landscaping for a mortgage banker who talks to him about buying a fourplex. There you go. Okay. He saves up his money. He buys a fourplex. Now his kids, his, his two boys that they, that he had, they're now the large, one of the largest landlords in the world. There you go. Thousands and thousands of doors, Peter. And it all started with nobody would rent him a place. And so he bought a place that was a fourplex owner occupied with an FHA mortgage, three and a half percent down. Okay. That instantly cash flowed. He lived there for free. Right. 
you're right. You've got to be able to make that step though. You've got to be able to, to uh, put yourself in a position where, I mean, you're taking a risk, but the, the risk is really doing nothing. Yeah. That's the biggest thing. Because if you don't put yourself at some point where you're going towards ownership, then, and you're perpetually renting, um, that, that doesn't seem like necessarily an option. I mean, I, I suppose I could see a circumstance where if someone said, well, I have to rent in downtown San Francisco or, or Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, you might do that, but if you're making enough money that you could buy someplace out, out, outside, yeah. do that as well. I mean, it's not, there's, there's a lot of different ways to go. And if you put on that seminar, I want to know when that seminar is going to be for young people, because I'm, I'm totally on this. I'm totally on that we, in the state of California, put all the political people from both parties, wherever you're from, we have to address the situation of the affordability of young people and young families to make it in California. That has to be the priority. That should be the priority of the governor's office, and it ought to be the priority for both uh, the assembly and the Senate in, in Sacramento. That, that, you know, that history repeats itself. Yeah. Okay. And I don't know if you remember this and if you don't, it's okay. But in the late nineties, early two thousands, there was a huge push on to, we sort of, as a nation, we've been at 62 and a half percent home ownership of the total population, that kind of thing sort of hovered around there, up, down, above it, below it. There was a huge push on to get that number up. The push was everybody needs to have the American dream. Everybody needs to have the opportunity, da, 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 right? Okay. Right. So we had two options here. We had two ways we could go. The first one was we go to work, and I mean to work, okay? We're, it's, it's not going to be easy, right. and it's not going to be cheap. But right. we go to work educating people on how to buy a house. We right. educate them on how to prepare their credit. We, I mean... Talk to a millennial about FICO scores and watch them glaze, watch them glaze over, okay? Right. I mean, obviously, you can tell I'm passionate about this, right? And I know you are, too. I know I'm preaching to the choir. But we had two options. We had two ways we could go. This was a fork in the road back in the late 90s, early 2000s. One was we could go to work teaching them and put the knowledge in their hands that they needed to go buy, to go buy a house. Or we could just relax standards. And what did we do? We took the lesser of the two, right, in terms of resistance, and we and we lessened standards, and we created the 2008 Great Recession. Right. That was the goal of achieving home ownership at that time was a noble goal. Yeah. The means by which we got there was not. And, and that's, that's how all this has come full circle again, because now we're in a spot that's similar to that. But we, and that's why we're writing the book because we absolutely have to take the case. And I, you know, I'm just crazy enough to think that I can do this, right? Sure. But I'm going to take the case, and this podcast is a is a springboard for this, okay? But we're going to take the case directly to millennials, and we're going to teach them with this book how to how to manage their credit, how to budget, how to save, how to buy a house how to do it without having to come out with 20% down. Let their parents know that their parents can help. There are a lot of parents out there, Peter, that have no idea, no clue that they can actually gift part of the down payment, closing costs, reserves, all that to their, to their kids. They don't even know they can do it. Right. So it's important, I feel, 
that we get the knowledge that I've accumulated after over all these years and the people that are that are helping me with this, that we get that knowledge to them. Right, right. And look what you're doing when you do that. Yeah. Uh, if a family strategizes to help, I mean, I'm fortunate that my parents couldn't help me, um, but I didn't really need the help. But it was a time when, you know, student loans weren't that big. I didn't have very many of them. I worked my way through school. A, a lot of things were more doable then. The cost of education wasn't as high when I was coming up as it is right now. I mean, there is a lot of challenges that really are pretty formidable, especially when you're talking about, you know, what's an entry level house cost in San Diego County or right. any house on the, you know, the coastal side or close to the coast of, of California. And then even when you come further here, you know, our prices have gone up in the Coachella Valley because people migrate where it's it's less expensive and then and then it brings the prices up which yeah. has benefits but it also has you know some some downsides to it yeah. so um it, it it seems like i think what we need to do is there's got to be a program of of i think there's got to be a building program mm -hmm. to increase the housing stock and almost like almost like um when they all the GIs came back from World War II and they built Levittown, New York, or they built all these neighborhoods mm -hmm. where there were small houses. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe 1,300 square feet or whatever they are, but mm -hmm. you could live in them. Yeah. And and we didn't think they were small. I mean, you're talking to a guy who was running around with his brothers in a two-bedroom apartment in Yonkers, New York. Everybody, you can survive, you can live, you got you love your family, then you go, you move someplace else and you, and you gradually- you, you manage. Right, and you manage. You manage, yeah. Those, those places could be- great starter or lifetime homes and um but it, it seems like we have to get away from what is increasingly a trend that the only way someone's going to be able to get a house is if someone wills it to them yeah you know we've got to we've got to make home ownership in my opinion um uh, a a doable option for young people and also and an aspiration people shouldn't be afraid my opinion, people shouldn't be afraid of the stock market either. I mean, there's a lot of, there's, you know, there's, there's ups and downs and you can get scared away from there, but over, over time, over time, you know, mm -hmm. but you, you, you do make out over time. And if you stay yeah. in, you're going to be happier than if you didn't stay in, generally speaking. I but agree with that. You have to, it's just like, I'm going to own this thing, this house for 25 or 30 years. I'm going to own this portfolio for this amount. And you have to commit to that. And if you do that, you'll get there. Right. You'll get there. Stick and it you out, though. Know, you have to stick it out. Yeah. They have to know that they can get there. And I think that we have a, you know, maybe, maybe there's a crisis. Do you see that? Like it, just a lack of confidence? It's, yeah. I, and, I, and, you know, COVID didn't help. No, it didn't. I, I'm being honest. It didn't help. Uh, you know, there were a lot of people that had, under the surface, bubbling up under the surface, agoraphobia. Yeah. And then COVID hits. And now they've got it full-fledged both barrels. Right. So it didn't help the fear factor, right? And it's it feels like there are a lot of people, younger people, and older people too, but there are a lot of younger people that feel like it's it seems like they're waiting for the other shoe to drop. And 
you know, the, the thing is, if you look at history, so you brought up the, the stock market, look at the stock market, look at what the stock market's done over history, right? Um, right. Tony Robbins wrote a book about, about mastering the game, the, the money game, you know, um, and he talks about the history and he, he interviews Ray Dalio. Ray Dalio is, I mean, probably one of the most successful people on the planet and his deal is hedge funds, right? And he's one of the most successful investors. Look at Warren Buffett. They, they're, you know, Warren Buffett, I don't think has sold very many stocks. He's purchased a lot, but he hasn't sold very many. Yeah, I, I he, well, he basically preaches the Oracle of Omaha. He basically preaches uh, buy quality hold. Yeah. You know? Buy and hold, and, well, and buy quality, but buy what you understand, right? And don't get rid of it. You know, right. it's going to go up, it's going to go down, it's going to do its thing, right? But if you look at the trajectory, right, just the just the general trend curve, it's continuing to go up. So is real estate, right? I mean, the stock market. You know, we had the big blip in two thousand eight, of course. Mm -hmm. Its value went down, but then I think it went from an overall value of uh, total volume of 14,000 down to 7,000. Mm -hmm. 37,000 now. Okay. It's going 37,000. Right, we're going up and down. We're going to go up and down, but generally it's going to go up. Um, my view has always been companies are going to, they will run into hard times. Mm -hmm. Companies have to compete to survive. And yeah. so they're going to figure out a way, you know, over time, they will they will right the wrongs that that plagued them that made their their stock go down and 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 generally you know you might have some blips you know you don't want you don't want to say oh I'm I'm an aggressive package of it, of equities and I'm I'm going to retire tomorrow and that's my portfolio that, that you might want to do some different things then mm -hmm. but we talk people if you look at the, the the couple of podcasts that I've done my baby podcasts on on my YouTube uh, channel which is mostly practice related. Mm -hmm. I interview a couple of people from uh, from San Diego, as a matter of fact, mm -hmm. um, about about investing and things of that nature. And, um, you know, the, the it's the, the long term, the long term is you got to have some discipline to stay in it. Um, you're going to have some ups and downs. But if you're just put, keeping your money in cash and putting it in, a, in the bank, uh, you're losing. You're losing. Yeah. And and. Uh, you know, maybe you're losing a little bit less now. I mean, now there's some there's some uh, CDs are a little bit better than they used to be. The fixed income funds are better, mm -hmm. which is good for older people. I do believe that. Um, but uh, you know, for a while they were down, like you know, we were single digit percentages and stuff. It was like you know very low. And uh, well, you have to invest. Yeah, you can't just leave it in your savings account, right? No. You have to put you have to take a portion of that and put it somewhere. Put it in real estate, put it in the stock market, put it somewhere where it's working for you. It's like Warren Buffett always says, don't work for money, let money work for you. Right, and you invest in yourself. You have a profession, yeah. you have a business, you have that as, as something that you keep your eye on that basket and that's your cash flow, that's what you're doing, that's what you love, that's what you're committed to, that's your calling. You know, right. it was the law for other people, be whatever it is gonna be. And, and, and you have that. But you have your real estate. You have to have a house to live in, so you have that. You 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 get that working where you're paid off. But then you have, you know, real estate's going up. Maybe the stock market's struggling, but you have it in different places. 
and it balances it, each other out. Yeah, you can do that. Um, and overall, you know, you sit down with these millennials. Look, if you have a fund of whatever it is, and you get seven percent return in ten years, you will have doubled that. If you do that again in in ten years, you will you will have doubled that. So think of what you could have at the end of ten years, of in a twenty year period. That's, but if you don't do anything, right. You You're going to have the same as what you have right now, 20 years from now. Right. Yeah, you, you, it's it's got to be talked about. Yeah. It, it does. It really does. Yeah. And that's why we're writing the book. You know, we're we're not necessarily going into stocks and that kind of thing, but we are going into real estate. And we're talking about why homeownership needs to be part of the American dream again. Um, we are going to write a book, by the way, the, we're writing three. So we're, we're writing this one. We're starting this one. We're going to write a, a book on for realtors on how to succeed in real estate the right way, and then because that's my get that's my deal, right? And then we're also going to the third book is going to be on investing, and it's going to be about real estate investing, but it's also going to talk about stocks and and that kind of thing. So we're going to interview some people that are really really good at investing in stocks and bonds and ETFs and that kind of one of one of the one of the pioneers of the ETF funds in this in this country is a friend of mine from eighth grade. True story. He's been on twice now. We've, we've done two podcasts with him. He is, um, he's very, he's, he's, um, how do I say this? Well-known <laughs> on wall street. So um, he's going to be a part of that book, a big part of it. So that's great. I want to say a couple of things about when we're talking about young people. Yeah. I, I think older people have to help younger people. Yeah. yeah. We, we have an obligation to do that. That's what we're here for. That's yep. the stewardship. That's what, you know, my belief system says we got to do that. We got to, we got to. Well, you got to pay it forward. Got to pay, pay it forward. Because here's the thing. In your life and in my life, there are people that are not even alive anymore that stopped at some point when they didn't have to. And they told us, you're doing it all wrong. You, you're, you need to go this way, Right. We need to we need to honor that. That's what we need to do, and we need to go out and create champions that then will pay it forward when the next generations come. But I will say this: I will say this. Um, recently, in the area of the websites for the law firm, in the area of practice management software, which I've gotten into and in going into another company now. In a lot of these different areas, I have come into contact with a lot of young people, mm -hmm. a lot of technical young people, a lot of entrepreneurial technical young people. Mm -hmm. They have got it wired pretty good. There, there's, there is a lot to be said. You know, there's this thing between generations and, uh, you know, you know, someone might say to me, you know, okay, boomer, whatever, whatever you want to say. But I say, no, I'm with you guys. I mean, I, I want to know what you're doing. I want to be, yeah. I want to be right with, with you guys. I'm, you know, I'm whatever age I am right now. We could figure it out. I was born in 59, but I think I'm going on 29 the whole time. You know, <laughs> I mean, and that's, and, and that's, you know, there's a lot of hope there. There's yeah. a lot of, 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 um, of, of smart young people out there and I think that they can grab a hold of this and, and really go the next step and lead us into the future, especially with what's coming down the pike with AI and all this. That's going to be people are fearing it and they're and there's concerns. Right. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be 
like the Renaissance, or, or, or it, it could be, if managed properly, it could improve our lives collectively like you wouldn't believe. And, and we, so we have to start also thinking, are, are we going to live in a country or in a state where we're always thinking the glass is half empty or we're going to look at it as, as half full and, and uh, make it more full for everybody in a right. fair way that's not sticking it to the other person right. or anything like that? And I think what you're talking about doing is, yeah, a rising tide floats yep. all what it yeah. is, right? It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. And the way we approach this, because we're in leadership now, the way we approach this is going to affect the next generation and the one after that. So it's important that we, like I said, leave this place better than how we found it. Absolutely. And a big part of that is what you're talking about. We've got to get this housing thing figured out. We also have to get these millennials taught, right? Right. Just need we just need to share. We need to talk. We need to work with them and help them. Can I ask you a question? Of course. Because I was down your way just this last weekend, and I just popped in at an open house because I do that every once in a while just mm -hmm. to see what's going on. Yeah, just for fun. I, I was because um, people get creative. Okay, mm -hmm. some of the places, especially if you get more coastal, they're expensive. They're really expensive. But I was talking with a gentleman, and he said, you know, they're they're easing up the restrictions on being to add additional dwelling units on properties. And that might be a way, all right, this is an expensive home. I am really gonna be strapped if I have to do this. I can't, the the, the traditional model of 25% of your income to your mortgage or whatever it used to be, yeah. you know, now it's maybe, I don't know, 60% of your income or I don't know how it is to, for people to even make it. But if you have the ability to, put something else on there and we look you know progressively at that if if the if the cities and the towns say we're going to we're going to enable that a little bit we're going to keep a, a, a handle on a little bit but we're going to enable those to occur so that people can afford it and then what else are you doing you're solving the housing crisis yeah helping solve a housing crisis and and the um the rental crisis where it's it's too expensive for people to make it even paying rent. So, you know, we got to increase the the supply. Yeah. And and you know, you hit on something. Auxiliary dwelling units are the single fastest growing segment of building in San Diego County right now. I mean, it is it is just booming. Right. And, and the reason it's booming is because you know, a few years ago, San Diego City came out and said, "Look, we're going to loosen the restrictions. We're going to cut the red tape. We're going to make this easier for you. And you don't have to build parking. Great. That I have a little bit of an issue with, because I don't know if you spent any time in North Park. Right. <laughs> right. And tried to find a, okay, so here's the thing. We don't walk enough. We don't walk enough as, as a, as a, as a society. E in North Park, you're going to walk because you got to park three blocks down the way. Right. Yeah. There's, there, you know, there'll be a solution for that as well. Yeah. There'll be a solution for that as well. And, yeah. and technology is potentially going to help us. You know, I can envision uh, an urban environment where you have these additional dwelling units. You, you have your, maybe your starter place is that additional dwelling unit or the, or that, or that, what you would call a tiny house, I would say a smaller yeah. house. Maybe yeah. it's just going to migrate over into that. And then if you're living close to uh, a downtown area where you work, you know, maybe maybe a couple or a young family, they have one car, but they, they're getting around on 
on electric scooters or something else that, you know, I ride my e-bike as much as I possibly can on the weekend because I just have so much fun doing it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a blast and it's, it, it's exercise. So yeah. I think there's, there's ways that we could adjust this and the traditional model of, you know, a house this size with this kind of a backyard and this kind of, that might have to change a little bit. It's going to, it but has it, to yeah. it could be great. It could be, it could be even better than it ever was Yeah. in, in terms of, um, communities being like villages and really being close to everything within walking distance it could be remarkably mm -hmm. great and i i just think that you know look at it look at uh glass half full rather than half empty but i did not look, know that look at what can be done diego did that look at what can be done right the question you ask is how can i make this happen right that's the question you ask instead of why is it that this always happens to me right or you know, I can't do this just right. When I, I raised, I have a 23 year old and a 25 year old. And when they were growing up, they were not allowed to use a word in the household. And it was can't. Right. We don't use that word. Right. So every time they used it or every time they tried to use it, we stopped it. Right. Okay. Now they've grown up and they don't use that word. And now they look at the world in terms of possibility, not in terms of, of restriction. So it's, you know, it's a big deal. Yeah. I mean, negativity is going to come in your life in various ways. People have been played with that. Young people have been played with that. But I do think it's up to, it's up to us as the older people, the mentors, the coaches, the, uh, the you know, I'm a dad to my daughter. I'm a, da you know, I'm a dad to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. You know, and in my wife's culture, you know, they people come over the house, they all call me uncle mm -hmm. from every all the kids. Yeah. And, and it's like, yeah, you're so you're you're you are an uncle. You're you're and you can try to impart these things to people would be helpful and and uh you know hopefully be able to do as much to influence policies and stuff that will really make a material change. Yeah, uh, but we I'm have to take we have to take our role seriously. Uh, what's that? We have to take our role seriously. Oh, absolutely. As an uncle, as a dad, you know, right? And here's another one. If Since we're getting on the housing stock, here's another <laughs> little bit of political pet peeve. I said, I told you one would be coming. Yeah. Right? I'm all for electric cars, definitely. Low yeah. emissions, all that stuff. I do think we've bypassed uh, the value of of uh, hybrids a, a, a little bit more than we could because it's, a, it's an affordable entry point for most mm -hmm. people. But if you're going to... If you're going to legislate the demand mm -hmm. by mandating the use of cars, which I think is great, you need to do something to uh, to assure the supply. Right. You've got. So I think that a, a goal for an American president, mm -hmm. Senate, a governor of any state is to make sure that the supply of electric power is affordable, is regular, um, it, it, it is a reliable, reliable. And if it powers your cars, if it powers your phones, if it powers your work at home station or your work at home station or your at work station or however you blend your work life going into the future, it powers all of your devices, all of your smart everythings that you have mm -hmm. and maybe even your vehicles so you have a clean environment, we need a supply. And and we and and we should be focusing on the in if we're going to be building infrastructure, it's be building electric electric infrastructure. Yeah, I agree. So that's my thing. I agree. I I believe we're headed down a road we don't want to go down. 
And I think we're headed to brownouts. Right. I think we're headed to a, just a disaster potentially. And, you know, it's absolutely, it's out your spot on. This grid has got to get improved. Can I ask you a question? Sure. You're in touch with San Diego. Mm -hmm. um, what's the general feeling in the population of San Diego about um, expanded nuclear power? And, 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 they don't and, like it. They don't like and, it. And I'll tell you, you know, we're still trying to figure out why San Onofre was closed. Okay. Yeah. But it, we believe that the reason for it was the environmental push. You right. have members, and, and some of them are militant, okay? But you have members of the Sierra Club active that are now in leadership all over San Diego County, county and city, okay? And part of the reason you have, part of the reason we have a housing shortage. So I don't know if you know who Alan Nevin is, but Alan's one of the top economists in the nation. He was our very first interview for our podcast. I saw Good a friend of mine. He's been a, yeah, he's been, he's been on my regular, on my radio show since 2011. And Alan told us in 2019 on radio, I was interviewing him, that if we don't import one person into San Diego County more than we export, if that just stays constant, we need organically in San Diego County 12,500 new units built and sold every year. We've never gotten near that number. You're talking about housing stock. Housing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've not gotten anywhere near that number for a long, long time. So think about this for a second. In some of those years, 2008, 2009, 2010, we were, we were building and selling a couple of thousand units down here. We were 10,000 plus units a oh, year short. Yeah. Oh, well, I know when I was in, in the 80s, in the 80s, uh, San Diego County was, I mean, it just was booming in terms yeah. of, I remember riding down on the 15 when I first came to San Diego County and seeing a sign on a stone monument on the 15 that had no traffic on it whatsoever. Mm -hmm. It was just wide open. And it said, coming soon, Carmel Mountain Ranch. Yeah. You know, it's like, a, okay. And there's a there's that whole big one over there. And there was, yeah. oh, because people were coming and mm -hmm. they did a good job. You know, there are a lot of good neighborhoods. They're really well planned and they're really well laid out. There's there's really good places to to live. I think people are really happy about it, but we gotta, you know, we gotta build more of them. Mm -hmm. They've gotta be sustainable. I, you know, I'm, I'm gonna say, look, you know, we learn a lot from our, our friends in the environmental community. I mean, they, they, they tell us, you know, what we gotta watch out for and they're right about a lot of things, but also people have to have some place to live. So we've gotta blend our, our things together Yep. And we got to have electric power. Yeah. Got to have electric power. And and solar, yes, for it. The 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 current technology that they're thinking about having where they can harness the currents under the ocean, great. Wind, we got wind out here. You come into Palm Springs, you're going to see these 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 wind. It's great. All that stuff, geothermal is great. Don't see how if you want to cut greenhouse emissions in the short term, you could avoid looking at nuclear. And if you've you know, and if somebody like the governor, you know, it was on 60 Minutes, the governor of the state of Wyoming, they're building these Bill Gates type, you know, in the ground, smaller reactors cooled with some kind of salt type thing. It's it's like really protective. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about a mismanaged Chernobyl as Ukrainian American. I'm very aware of that. Right. We're talking about 
you know, smaller, containable, very safe out, maybe in outlying areas where they'll be very protected. And who are they going to be selling that electric power to? Mm-hmm. Us here in California, they're building it to export it. That's exactly what they're doing. France, France right now mm-hmm. is, I think my numbers are correct. Uh, had the opportunity to be there this last summer. And I was reading when we were, when we were in Paris, it was 80% of their, something like 80%. You're right, you're right. Nuclear. It's an increasing amount is renewables. Mm-hmm. Impressive. It's in the double digits. And I think it's like seven or 8% of ele- electricity generation is fossil fuels. Yeah. They export to the rest of, the, of Europe because mm-hmm. they wanted to be energy independent Mm -hmm. and so that's what they did and i if if france can do it which is a liberal democracy exactly why wouldn't we be able to do it as opposed to what burning coal you know you know i mean it's like you got to weigh it out a little bit and and so i think we have to have we have to have the discussion yeah we do yeah and i and you see some people like what they're doing over in Wyoming, they're 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 going into it a little bit more, a little bit more heavy, and yeah. uh, you know, so we'll see what happens with that. And Wyoming's embracing it. Yeah, yeah, they're oh. embracing it. They they also had something about where you know I'm not sure if coal can ever be clean, but they're talking about they they do have some technologies where they can capture the 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 uh, yeah. I don't you know as it's as it's I guess coming out or or trap it. You know, they're not there yet, but if you look at the numbers, the world's population is growing, you know, we, we want to get off of fossil. I, I think that I, the, the goal is to get off of fossil fuels, but how do you get off of them in the next 20 to 30 years without some bridge technologies helping us get there? I mean, something's got to fill it in. Yeah, got to fill it's it in. It's a gap and something's got to fill it in. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. In fact, I have a recommendation for you. Uh, Alan Nevin, who I told you about, just had a book uh, released. We actually interviewed him last month about it uh, called The Next Half Century. And I would highly recommend reading it. It is fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. We have an idea, you and I, of what the world looks like and where we're headed and all that kind of thing. This will turn it on its head for you. It will. This book will absolutely turn it on its head. It's called an economist. Basically. Yeah, the next half century. Yeah. Okay, I'll I'll, I'll look at that. I, I I think I saw you speaking with him. I was watching some of the videos, yeah. and I saw you speak with him for a little bit. He he seems like a very uh, um, cerebral guy. For, oh yeah. For thinking. For He's thinking. one of the smartest people you'll ever meet in your life. I guarantee it. And that book that he wrote, he's got another book that he's writing that he's going to be done with in about ten months, and we're going to have him back on the podcast to talk about that too. Um, but this one he just had released um, in October, and it's called The Next Half Century, and I would highly recommend it. Do you ever do in your podcast where you have multiple people, like in a panel discussion, going back and forth, like where you would have a topic and people would talk about this? Because this housing thing, getting this housing thing off the ground is something that, I mean, this should be, you know, electric power, housing, housing for Californians, housing for Californians, affordable housing for Californians. And affordable electricity for Californians. The, the, that they should be. That should be. Everybody should be all over that. I mean, there, there's nothing else that they really need to worry about. As 
there's a lot of things, but there, there's really, if you did that, look at all the social ills that would probably be completely satisfied. Yeah. Of a safe place to live and they can afford to run it and they can afford to get where they're going and in, in a um, economically sane way, a lot of other things are going to take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. Yeah, we... We have not graduated to that yet, the panel discussion thing, but we will be. Uh, it's probably going to be, and it, we may end up doing it before that. But when once we have a studio built, we'll because we're just we're just three months into this, or a little over three months into this, so we're sort of at our infancy, you know. Um, we're at 80, 80 plus episodes anyway, um, wow. and so you know we're on our way. But once we have our once we have our studio built we'll be we'll be doing more panel type discussions and that kind of thing and one of the things that we're working on i had the the chairwoman of uh, the san diego county republican party on the other day and uh, we interviewed her so one of the things we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking to leaders and we're going to be talking to people that are prospective leaders right um right. and and having this this type of a conversation where we need to figure out a way to solve this problem and the best way to do it that I can think of is let's sit down and let's listen to each other. Okay. Yes. This is not a democratic. This is not a Republican. This is not an independent. This is not a subject that is partisan. This is a subject that is quality of life. And it's about leaving this place better than the way we found it. Democrats want that. Independents want that. And so do Republicans. Everybody wants that. Exactly. So and, and, that's our thing that ties us in a common way. And so we need to work with that. Right. Uh, I ran into a city councilman recently. I was at the gym and there's a gentleman up here uh, who's on the city council for the city of Palm Desert. And I actually think the city of Palm Desert is, is run is run pretty well. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he says about local politics, he says, you know, he, he runs a, a a desert touring operation that takes Jeeps out into the desert. And so he has to deal with the BLM land and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And he has a, an electric bike store and all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, and uh, see him at the gym every once in a while. And um, um, he says, hey, look, when we're, in, we're in this type of an environment, city environment, everybody's getting together. It, it's not, we're not really talking about what might be the, the hot point national issues. We're talking about making sure the roads are fixed and making sure that everything's, you know, you know, you've got safe, you know, good water delivery, safe, the trash is getting picked up on time and everything. And, and, um, and that you have a good tax base and that you have programs to, uh, to uh, enable the things that we're talking about. And I think that that's where you just let all this partisanship, there is no partisanship. There's no room for it. You don't have to have it. Yeah. Uh, everybody's going to benefit from the things that we're talking about. And it's I going agree. to, it'll bring us more together, but you're absolutely right. Gotta listen. Yeah. Gotta listen to the other side. Gotta listen to someone else who has a point of view and just sit yourself down into a room and listen to each other until you figure out the, the, the course that you're gonna take to go forward to make things happen. There's a way, there's absolutely yeah. a way. Now it's not necessarily this way or this way, but it's somewhere here, right? So like one of my best friends, who was the best man at my wedding, uh, I was getting ready to interview him on my radio show on KFMB, and I was standing in the parking lot next to his car talking to him. And I asked him, I said, so are you a Republican? 
And he said, no. He said, I'm independent. And I said, do you mind, not, do you mind if I ask you why? And, th and this is the reason I'm asking, Maria, I'm telling you this, is if you met him, you really would think that he was, he was Republican, right? He's pretty conservative and conservative values and all that. And I said, do you mind if I ask you why? I'm perfectly happy to tell you. He said, years ago, I used to drive into Los Angeles and I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. And he said, and now I drive to Los Angeles and I can actually see the buildings. Right. Okay. Right. He said, you know, Democrats don't have all the answers, but they got it right with that. On, on emissions. Right on every side. You with Absolutely. me? Absolutely. And that's, I never forgot that. 100%. 100%. I mean, you know, and you look back historically, you look back, I mean, where we would get to the point where we would think that the environmental people who are for the environment are only Democrats. Yeah. Well, you know, Richard Nixon, I mean, I'm old enough to remember Nixon. I mean, right. I mean, I had a terrible implosion of his presidency. We all know that. But Republican started the EPA. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I think he was uh, bolstered the Food and Drug Administration. I mean, there were things that people said, look, well, we want to have, you know, clean air and clean water. We want to have all these different things. So there are um, places of commonality yeah. that, that you know, they're not, it's not Democrat or, or, or Republican. It's, right. it's, it's just common sense. Yeah. And, um, I think that we need to have uh, get back to that a little bit. I mean, what we have now is is uh, the antithesis of all of that, and it just seems we're we're perhaps going to be mired in that for a little bit longer. But it, it could change. It could change to where we get some just some sensible people up there that uh, um, you know put the um, you know these goals that we're talking about first. You know. And I think where you start with that is at the local level. Mm -hmm. And where you start with that is also at the state level. I mean, I, I just think that if we have a, a, a governor uh, or a um, uh, House representatives of the Assembly and the Senate and up in Sacramento that are committed to those things, we got a housing problem in California. We need yeah. to get more housing. And we, we're going to have to do some things to it. We're going to have to make sure that it's built correctly and and it's not going to you know destroy the environment or hurt any endangered species or any of those things 100 for that not not just paying lip service to that because right. i'm not a registered republican either but i but i do vote i vote who i think is the best person yeah you know and um uh you know my politics have probably up to this point been traditionally more on one side than the other I think I think you'll find a lot of people that are fiscally conservative, uh, but socially liberal in, in in the way of mind your own business for mm -hmm. one thing, treat other people as you would be treated, leave them alone. You know, you know we can deal with that with just some basic ethics in our society. Well, dignity, um, right? It's, right. It's dignity. Dignity, right? Yeah. Just treat other people as you would be treated, as 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 we've been taught by you know, and and some belief systems, you know, and uh, um, recognize that we're we're not we're not here all by ourselves. There's a lot of different ways of looking at that uh, higher power, but uh, 
we're, we're not alone and, and, and we have to be cognizant of that. And if you do that, I think you get this commonality of, of purpose that uh, can take us over the humps of differences that don't have to be blown up all the time to be, you know, something that just creates this impossible level of inertia. Yeah, I agree. Honestly. So I agree. anyway. Well, this has been fun. Is there anything else you'd like to cover before we wrap up? I, boy, I probably babbled on too long. I'm sure you I did great. Time. You did great. I'll be back if you want me back. Absolutely. Back. Absolutely. We need to do this again. Yeah, for sure. For sure. This I appreciate is you, buddy. Thank but you I so really much. want to know what you're doing with, with Keep Me Posted. Oh, absolutely. And thank you so much for taking the time out to do this. I really enjoyed our time together. Um, and I just, I can't thank you enough from the bottom of my heart. So thank you, for being our, thank you for being our guest on the Michael Litton Experience. Thank you for having me. Great to have you, bud. Take care. We hope you enjoyed another episode of the Mike Litton Experience. If you did, do us a favor, smash that subscribe button, tell your friends, family, and coworkers about our program, and wherever you get your podcasts, please leave us a rating. It helps us to connect with quality people just like you. And that's a wrap. Another episode of the Mike Litton Experience in the books. Reach out to Mike on Instagram at Litton Realty. Want to meet with Mike? Check out calendly.com slash Rio 760.